so the constitutive turn, great. Uh, uh, but uh, what are we doing? We're trying to figure out, I mean, you're figuring out what constitutional law is. And it's true that what constitutional law is is, is uh, contingent uh, sociological fact. This is something you've, you've stressed a lot, and I've, I've been a big fan of that point. But the fact that you've got a contingent sociological fact that makes us care about the Constitution doesn't mean that the Constitution is constituted by sociological fact itself. So it seems like talking about constitutional law uh, and what constitutes constitutional law without actually talking about what the Constitution is is a, a Hamlet without the prince. So one of the central features of our discourse today is we talk about the Constitution. We, you know, you Google how old is the Constitution and it'll tell you, actually it'll tell you 226 years because some article said that in 2014. But uh, uh, congressmen, congressmen say we, we have the same Constitution. Uh, they say we take the, swear, the same oath, but we have the same Constitution that uh, George Washington uh, had. Al Franken says this. Harry Reid says this. Uh, lots and lots and lots of people say things like this. The Supreme Court says it's not uh, 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 what we've said, but the Constitution itself. Our decisions can be wrong the way they, the day they were decided in virtue of the Constitution. So. So Tarski uh, uh, has this distinction between formal consistency and formal correctness, and uh, 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 you might call it reflective equilibrium, and we have to have all our intuitions match and make sense uh, as a matter today. That's one thing you want, but the other thing is material adequacy. So you've got a term like electron, and you've got to use it coherently, but there have to actually be electrons. You've got a term like ether, and you want to use it coherently, but there's got to be ether. There's not. You got a term like phlogiston. You, you got to use it uh, coherently. There has to be phlogiston. Well, it's lack of oxygen, and certain uses you know, are material adequate and, and, and certain. Anyway, all of us just say all of this stuff is just about uh, uh, formal consistency and <coughs> coherence. There's nothing here about material adequacy. And given the way we talk about the Constitution, this theory is not materially adequate. So, Charles. Oh, uh, this. Well, my question, I guess, isn't fair because it's you, the two things that you don't talk about. One is you have the Dworkin section, TBD, uh, and then the other part is is what you and you gave some nice comments about it here about what you explicitly want to reserve comment on about about the, the connection, the grounding relation, as you say, between principles and social facts. But I just want to suggest it's, it's a much bigger problem than that, that you can't just kind of bracket. Uh, I mean, that's what's that issue in positivism, right? That's the question. Otherwise, it's not principled positivism. It's principled something else. Uh, and you come pretty close, it seems to me at least, you come pretty close to, to giving Dworkin's view, Dworkin's criticism of Hart, precisely because he, like you, doesn't think that there, should, there needs to be that much agreement in order for there to be law says we look to principles that have weight and that that's how we, in exactly the same kind of structure that you're talking about. Only his point is those are not reducible in some way to social facts, they are values. And it's not just, I don't think you say, you try to distinguish Dworkin on page 165 and say, well, they don't have to be moral values, moral principles. That's fine, but that's not the point. The point is just that they're values and not facts. 
And the difficult, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common problem. It's, it's hard to understand how we could generate norms, genuine norms, from facts. You know, some people think that's impossible. So if it is, in fact, principles that have normative weight, to use the word you say, it, it's, it's, it's hard to see how that, uh, how you do that. I mean, well, one way of, of getting at the same point is to say, you suggested that we could have productive disagreements here about the principles. How would we argue about those principles? What, what would be the nature of the argument, arguing about how much original intent should matter versus text? Are we looking to social facts to answer those? Is that how you see the debates going? <coughs> so I guess I'd just press on that whole point, the sort of the, the fundamental level of is this really, does it, or do you really want to adopt, uh, is it principled positivism? Might you be open to something else? John? So, <clears throat> Mitch, I'm sympathetic to a lot of what I think you're trying to do in this paper, but I want to play devil's advocate and push back hard on, uh, on you from a sort of textualist point of view. So um, one point is that I think you would benefit from deploying a sort of syntax-semantics distinction at various points in the text. To me, the <coughs> first bit where you're insisting that the text is not law is um, kind of trivially true. Um, the, no one thinks that the, synta the syntax of the Constitution is law. They think that the semantics of the Constitution is law. But your examples sometimes seem to lend themselves to, you know, when you're pointing out that the same semantics could be said differently, that's just well understood and not in controversy. So a way to put this linguistically would be to avail yourself of the old distinction that linguists use between the surface and the deep structure of sentences. So it, this is, was well investigated that through linguistic transformation and other devices, you can get a variety of surface structures that yield the same deep structure. And that, I think, is something that you're kind of working with here, different ways in which uh, the same meaning can be said um, at the level of the text. But it, ultimately, I don't think it's going to... I think what you're doing here needs that distinction. The more... Um, kind of important point is I guess I don't understand how your theory of our principled constitution is being sufficiently sensitive to the writtenness of our constitution. Because at the start of section two where you sort of <clears throat> say actually this is not just a theory of the American constitutional law or only of law but of any artificial system, I've a little bit kind of lost the thread um, because I would have thought that a uh, theory of our principled constitution would have to, at some level, it would have to make a difference to that theory that we have a written constitution rather than an unwritten constitution, say the British constitution or something like that. Or to put it differently, this could just as easily be a theory of our principled common law as opposed to our principled constitution. Um, it, it has to make a difference that we have a written constitution and that each and every sentence of the constitution has a syntax, has a semantics might have pragmatic enrichment of the kind that Larry has talked about. And when you begin there, you can often get to a point of view where you can derive answers to particular questions only on the basis of the informational content gleaned from all of those uh, sentential objects. That's going to be um, a basis on which you can get a lot of truth statements about constitutional law without having to go into the higher metaphysics that you do. Mitch? The rule of three is particularly hard for a paper of this sort, I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is hard for me. Okay, so John, I don't think it's a syntax semantics point. I think it's a text point. Because my point, and I think the passage you're referring to is just to say, the constitutional text is the law is making a category mistake. 
That's different from saying anything about the semantics. Text is a physical object here. So I'm just saying, just like Chris was saying, people say X, Y, and Z all the time. People say all the time, the constitutional text is the law. Things that prohibitions, permissions, norms, that's what law is, I think, not text. So there's got to be a relationship between the text and the norms. So maybe we'll follow up afterwards. But I, I think that uh, there, I'm just making a simple point. Once you understand that the text is not the law, we have to investigate the relationship between them. Uh, yeah, writtenness is going to matter. So you're not going to see a principle that says the semantic content or the communicative content of the text has substantial significance in a normative system that doesn't have an authoritative text. So of course, the writtenness is going to be important. I mean, or at least it could be. But at the right level of abstraction, of generality, I think my account still is right when you said, ah, why isn't this account of our principled common law? At the right level of generality, it is. But all the details are going to be contingent. And they're going to depend upon all sorts of social facts. And one of them is going to be, hey, we've got a written uh, text here. And that's going to affect, probably, the contents of our principles. Uh, Charles. Yeah, I, I have a certain account. I'm relying upon a certain concept of what law is. And I'm saying this is where it's sort of a social practice. It's things that are taken up uh, that serve a certain role in the governance of the, of the population that subscribes to the system. That's my concept of law. And I'm saying, what is the nature of this thing to which this concept applies? There are other concepts of law. So if your concept of law is the law just is a communicative content of the text, no matter how that bears upon the actual behaviors of humans who are part of the legal system, then I'd say that's a different concept of law. And then you're right, by definition, it follows trivially that the content of that law is just going to be the communicative content of the text. Or if your concept of law is that which if you have a particular nat one of you know, any one of dozens of different natural law concepts of law, then that's going to have implications for the nature of the thing that the the nature of the thing that that concept applies to. So there are lots of different concepts out there. Uh, I'm giving an account of how the contents of legal systems, how legal systems, how legal norms gain their contents under a certain positivistic concept of law. But it doesn't rule out the possibility that there are other concepts of law, and I don't know how to adjudicate those disputes. But I don't think my account is the same as, as Dworkin's, because he does think that it's part of the nature of law, under his concept of law, that law serves to morally justify the exercise of physical coercion. So if he builds that into the concept of law, then of course it's going to have implications downstream, and I'm disavowing that. But you said something also very interesting when you said genuine norms. And I wonder what work 
the adjective genuine was doing for you. And I suspect that when you said genuine, you were making the type of point that I'm trying to address in the section of my paper that addresses the normativity problem. So if it is your concept of law that law provides genuine norms, or as sometimes people put it these days, norms with real normativity, uh, then as opposed to merely ostensible or thin normativity, then I would agree we have Hume's problem. But I'm giving a concept of law in which it's not the case that the legal norms that are delivered have real normativity. So then I don't think that there is the ontological and metaphysical problem of deriving norms uh, that lack real normativity from social facts any more than it is a problem of explaining how meaning is ultimately grounded upon social facts. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's my response to that. Uh, Chris, you keep saying, the Constitution, there's this object, but there's a lot of ambiguity there. What do we mean by the Constitution? Sometimes when we say the, <laughs> that, that I think is really, really revealing because that's not really where you want to go. So when you say the Constitution or this Constitution is the supreme law of the land, well, actually, we're not referring to something that you can point to and touch and that, we can, uh, that has material essence. So you point, as oh, it's obvious, when you say the Constitution, I mean this thing right here, this physical thing. No, that's not what you mean. Not if you think that it is the supreme law of the land, because the thing that's in your pocket or on your desk is not the supreme law of the land. So the Constitution sometimes refers to the constitutional document, a single physical thing. Sometimes it refers to the constitutional text, meaning the arrangement of, of signs and symbols and lexical ordering. Uh, sometimes it means the set of norms that are partly produced by and arise from the text and or the act of ratification. That is the object that I have in mind when I refer to the Constitution, I think, of, uh, in, in trying to explain what determines the Constitution. I'm using the Constitution in the sense of the set of legal norms that are fundamental and have a certain sort of relationship to a particular datable event and a particular text. Our next triad uh, is uh, Larry Solom, John McGinnis, and Larry Alexander. Uh, well, thank you for the paper, Mitch, and I'm so glad we're going to be talking about it for another two hours on <coughs> Thursday, because there's a lot here. I'll know in a moment whether I'm glad to. That's <laughs> fascinating. Uh, you asked me a question in the paper in footnote 56, and part 5A of the constraint principle is a full answer to that question. I'll send it to you. <laughs> um, you need therapy. <laughs> but of a particular kind. You need Wittgensteinian therapy, right? So um, you're objecting to this loc uh, the locution, the United States Constitution is the law, right, on the grounds that technically it's not the law, it's just the source of law. But of course, this is a perfectly ordinary way of talking. The United States Constitution is the law. The Confederate Constitution is not the law, right? And everyone understands what we mean by those locutions. And so you have an uncharitable interpretation of uh, theorists and uh, 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 judges and lawyers who use a perfectly ordinary means of expression. There is normative disagreement about our constitutional practice. 
And that normative disagreement can be expressed in many ways. One way of expressing the normative disagreement would draw a sharp distinction between positive claims about what the law is and normative claims about what the law should be. That's one way we could talk. But it's not, in fact, the way we do talk, right? Normative disagreement about our constitutional practice is frequently expressed as a normative disagreement about what our practice really is deep down. And there's no, there is no sharp line inherent in sort of the fabric of the universe uh, between these two enterprises. They blur and blend one into the other, right? And this is because we can engage in metalinguistic negotiation or metalinguistic contestation over the key terms in the debate, right? And this is frequently the way that normative argument proceeds. And there's another place where I think the same point, the same high-level point about sort of Wittgensteinian therapy comes into play. And this is in the vector, addition, the vector analysis, right, of the relationship of uh, uh, weightiness as width and uh, applicability as length of principles. Um, I, I think I'll, we'll hear from Larry about this, my guess is, uh, uh, very soon. But um, I don't think that this part of the paper really answers Larry's argument because it doesn't take into account the role that uh, your principles are playing as uh, reasons with content, right? So the reasons cannot be reduced to applicability and weight. You have to take into account the content of the reasons. But once we variegate the content of the reasons, then incommensurability problems, which I'm going to just lead to Larry, because I just can't believe he's going to talk about anything else, are going to come into play. John? Uh, my uh, question, I think, goes back to uh, uh, the point about, is Scalia really a straw man here? And it seems very worrying to me, or an issue for one of your particular arguments in which you sort of reject uh, constitutive accounts of constitutional norms by giving this list of cases. Uh, it's powerful if you um, either reject a precedent or think, as Scalia seemed to say, it's just an exception that really can't be explained. Of course, there are now a lot of originalist theories that not only contemplate that precedent is part of the Constitution, but that think that we can have good precedent rules that um, uh, trade off among the generative force of originalism versus the mistakes that are inevitable in any kind of system. Well, maybe they can take account of many of these uh, uh, cases, and uh, therefore the power of that argument becomes much reduced. So I think you need uh, at least to look at a variety of originalist theories that weave in precedent before one simply rejects the constitutive argument as so obviously uh, false under some sort of reflective equilibrium uh, position. Larry? Yeah, well, I, I did. I said Mitch some some comments earlier on you know on on, on dealing with um, principles. Um, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the principles discourse, and I it, there was a statement that that Steve made in his in his comments on the paper that 
reflected something that I'd also said in my comments to you, which is when, when people, so suppose we all are arguing about one of these candidate principles. I say it has this scope and this weight, and you say it has a different scope and a different weight. First place, exactly, it, are the principles presumably constituted by this, in which case we have a sort of self-reference thing. We, we know we're, we're, you know, it's, it's our argument about them that's somehow constituting them, and it's not clear to me how that, how that works. Um, and, and secondly, um, so, you know, one of the, um, one, of, one of the things that you rely on, and, and this goes back to a, to a, to a long history we've had in, in discussing this, so this is uh, in 2008 during the presidential campaign. There was this issue about whether John McCain was a natural-born citizen, and we were Mitch and I were at a at a conference together, and 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 Mitch broached this subject, which he then wrote about in the conference uh, uh, chapter. Um, that um, it was his it was firm in, intuition that John McCain was eligible to be president, and this was notwithstanding any particular interpretation of the natural born citizen clause. That, you know, that it, this was just independent of that and presumably unaffected by that. And I said, well, I just don't have such intuitions, you know? I mean, I, you know, I, I might have an intuition about the meaning of the clause, but I don't have any intuitions about whether John McCain, independently of the clause, is eligible to run for president. And I see that this is, is continued in the article. So on, on pages, uh, basically page 19, but beginning slightly at the bottom of page 18, and running over to page 20, are a list of judgments. And it says um, um, the, the, uh, the constitutive originalism is fundamentally inconsistent with too many constitutional judgments that strike many of us as correct even on reflection. And I just looked at them and I said, well, they may or may not be correct, but you know, they, don't, they don't strike me as correct independently of the clauses that they're purporting to be you know, interpreting. In fact, some of them strike me as quite incorrect. And um, I, so I, I, but I don't have any intuitive judgments about the Constitution that don't come from the Constitution as the as the the essentially the the norms encoded in that text. I just don't have any any constitutional uh, intuitions, nor do I understand you know what what I would be arguing about if I was arguing about some principle that somehow is underlying this. That's okay. Let's see, on Larry Solem first. <coughs> you said that I am uncharitable to the claim that the US Constitution is the law. People say that all the time. That's not actually what I address, though. I address the claim that the constitutional text is the law, not that the US Constitution is the law, because the US Constitution is ambiguous in just the ways that I was explaining in my response to Chris. So I'm just saying that the US constitutional text is the law, is incorrect. But I also say 
that's okay. I don't think I'm uncharitable because I say, that's fine. It's a type of thing we say all the time. It's just sort of incautious and can cause trouble in certain contexts. But it's the claim that the US constitutional text is the law, which I say is strictly speaking false. And I think the latest draft, maybe not the one you have, I say this point is both modest and profound. It's modest because it doesn't uh, establish that there may not be it doesn't establish that there is not a very close, perhaps intimate relationship between the law and the text, but it's profound in that it just forces us to think about what that relationship is. So I don't think that I'm uncharitable there, but it's not quite as you described it. It's not that I say the U.S. Constitution, I don't uh, have, I don't take on people who say the U.S. Constitution is the law, it's the U.S. Constitutional text. Um, Boy, I have the same problem that Mike McConnell had before. I don't know what the heck this is. Okay, but I, I know I had more to say about Larry. I'm sorry. I can see why you have a problem with the text. Maybe there are principles that can help you interpret. But I'm sorry about I'm sorry about that, Larry. Uh, uh, John McGinnis, I don't know, is Scalia a straw man? I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think I've got more to say in response to John's observations. On, on, I'm sorry, on, on Larry. Well, you don't have any of these intuitions. That's fine, that's a report about yourself. But you make, uh, but, but you make, but you make stronger claims and those are the stronger claims that I am addressing. So you claim, I deny that anyone does or can have legal intuitions that precede a theory of, of law. So that's, both an, that's a claim about legal psychology and a claim, that itself is a claim about legal psychology. That strikes me as very surprising. Uh, people report all the time, judges report all the time I have this intuition that thus and such is the right result. I think legally it's correct, that phi, but I don't yet have a theory of constitutional interpretation. Most judges don't have a theory of constitutional interpretation, but do have constitutional uh, intuitions at the retail level. Now you could be saying though that even though people do have them, although you don't, they are just completely unreliable. They have no epistemic uh, value. To which I say, well, where do you think you get any judgments about anything? How are you going to prove out your originalism, your original intention or originalism, or original public meaning originalism, or any other view? How are you going to prove it out? Well, you're going to start from uh, some axiom that you're going to help yourself to, or are we already in the soup and we just have to reason from all the beliefs we already have? It seems to me that the latter is the right way that we reason in these domains. So. Uh, that, and that's fully consistent with the idea that some intuitions people have are very wrong, and it's consistent with the idea that people might not have many constitutional intuitions at a retail level. I don't know how many people have, but I do think that reasoning often starts with this idea that it seems like Brown was rightly decided, or it seems like, uh, oh, I don't know, people can, the president has to be able to remove its, his own appointees or something. These are intuitions that we have that this seems like right based on our system because we already are in the stream of things. It's not as though we start this inquiry. Nobody here in this room 
enters into these investigations as a constitutional innocent. We already have been well socialized into a practice and have picked up lots of things. Like people who speak native English speakers understand that you say it's the big yellow house, not the yellow big house, even though they may, may not be able to tell you, you know, I have an account of the order of adjectives in which, uh, in which size adjectives precede color adjectives. But just being socialized as speaking English all your life, you have an instinct that one is right and one is wrong, even though you couldn't tell us just why that is. That's the same thing with respect to law. You ask, though, this seems like my account would have this puzzling feature that our discussion and debate and argument about the principles is not only a debate about a phenomenon which pre-exists and is independent of our debates about it, but rather our debates affect it. To which I say, that is exactly correct. It is true. Just like making use of a trail. When you use a trail, by using the trail, you further reinforce the trail. Or by uh, uh, walking off the trail, you change the trail, even if you think you're following it. So this type of, ref of um, dynamic process of persons who are legal elites, as I take legal scholars to be, let alone judges and lawyers, arguing about what our principles are is the social facts that help determine what the principles are. Our next group um, is uh, James Fox, uh, Ilya Solman, and Bernadette Myler. Jamie? Um, I think you just answered my question. Um, I wanted to hear more about what you think about the social. I know that this paper is not really about the mechanics of the way this this works. You say it's very complicated. You're not. You're just trying to establish that it does that it does exist. And and unlike most people, I'm 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 fine with that in part because I I think that it's above my jurisprudential pay grade. So I'm um, just trying to figure it out. But but on the social facts part. So what, part of my question was how do you think the um, I mean, the way you write it is is much more hierarchical, and and it it, it read to me more linear than I think you mean it, um, because you talk about the that it's interactive, like you just did. Um, but one of the problems then is that what is your conception of what social facts are, how fixed they are, and how much the principle and potentially legal rules affect what those social facts are. So, I mean, it's, I think you answered that in, in part, but I, I, I think there's a sort of deeper question in there about the nature of social facts, because they are social facts and they are not physical facts, um, that it's not as fixed as, at least when you talk about it being grounded. I'm not sure that a principle being grounded in social facts if the social facts are not as stable. Um, so, for instance, if you have, as the principle develops, you understand social facts differently. And in fact, those social facts could, in fact, be different once the principle changes. Uh, a, a, a principle of equality changes what you recognize as social facts about equality and, and what counts for that. So that may not be clear. You seem puzzled by it. So, but. Let's get everybody in and then and hear from Ilya. Yeah. 
so I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this paper, a lot of it at a higher level of analytical sophistication and certainly I myself could aspire to, so I think that's very impressive. Uh, but I'm also gonna, as, as opposed to do, I'm gonna ask a critical question, and I think the critical question starts with the observation, I think it's actually very appropriate that you are up here with Steve, because I think even though one of you is an originalist and one of you isn't, I think your respective theories, which are you know, both important contributions to scholarship, do share a common weakness, and that is a tendency to collapse the positive and the normative. Like, I think Mitch's paper, much of it functions as a very good description of sort of actual practices and principles that are very influential in the American legal system that exists in 2017. I might quarrel with some of the details, but I certainly agree to all of those things are out there and they do influence the way judges think, the way other people think, and so forth. But there's a little bit of a missing link here, which is it doesn't necessarily follow that we should be following those principles or that judges should be. I think your argument, like Steve's, theory is not merely saying this is descriptively what a lot of judges or a lot of other people do. It's saying they should be doing this kind of stuff, at least to some substantial degree. And I think that additional link needs to be defended, uh, I think, more than it currently is. Uh, let me sort of illustrate by example what might be the need for the link that let's say you were doing the same sort of analysis circa 1930. I think at that time, if you surveyed the decisions, the practices, and so forth, you would find that one principle that clearly seemed to be embedded in many areas of law is a principle of racial hierarchy, that white Americans uh, have a right to rule over and control African Americans, Native Americans, Asians and so forth, and you could see this as a principle, not the only principle, but a principle that's in American law at the time. Uh, now, does this mean that it was out of bounds for the NAACP and others to say this is actually unconstitutional, what was being done along these lines? I would argue not, because even though the NAACP, they weren't stupid, they surely recognized that this is a deeply embedded into practice and in court decision, lots of other things. They had a theory of, a normative theory of the Constitution uh, that says, you know, this is wrong for reasons X, Y, and Z, and it should be changed. Similarly, uh, one reason why Scalia is not a straw man is that uh, their tension is thought, but one strand of his thought is to say, yes, I recognize the judges and others are appealing to these principles of dignity and national advocacy, and I'm sure national adequacy and so on and so forth, but an, an original might say that's a load of hooey that they shouldn't be appealing to, just like the end of ACP in 1930 was, was saying that this tendency towards racial hierarchy is one that is inconsistent with the best interpretation of uh, the Constitution and should be extirpated. So the originalists could be wrong about that. That's, you know, there could be any number of reasons why they're wrong. But, uh, but it's not enough, I think, to say that certain things are embedded into practice. The whole point of originalism, and here I'm at odds with Steve's view, is uh, to actually criticize large parts of modern practice and say these things are wrong, rather than to say, rather than to a descriptively capture what courts may be doing. Some of the time the courts are doing originalist. Other, other times, if you're a sufficiently committed originalist, you might say courts are doing a lot of stuff that they shouldn't be doing, and we aim to explain why. So I think my uh, question actually follows up on Ilya's. I, in one respect, I think you are giving uh, a much richer vision of what uh, law is or what constitutional law is by giving this constitutive theory, but on another account you might be said to be giving less um, than some theories at least because I didn't find a vision of where legitimacy springs from here or at least not a fully fleshed out vision um, and I guess 
you know, a lot of the uh, other theories that you're talking about kind of come out of an effort to solve the problems of the counter-majoritarian difficulty or uh, come up with some vision of how democracy is still ultimately legitimating our adherence to a constitutional order and our adherence to judicial review. Um, and here, I guess, I was wondering if you could kind of unpack more any theory of legitimacy that is in here or explain why we don't need a theory of legitimacy on your view. Thanks. Uh, on Jamie, yeah, the ground, a grounding relationship doesn't depend upon the grounds being stable at all. Everything is dynamic. So uh, I, I think of uh, Scalia says, Pantare is no theory of law. Right? That doesn't tell us. That everything, everything flows doesn't tell us really what the law is. That's not a theory to which I'd say, that's right. At least it has the benefit of being true. Uh, so yeah, the, the grounds change. Everything changes. Things are in flux. Uh, and it's true that there is a feedback relationship of the sort that you described. So what the principles are, or what we believe the principles are, or what we believe the law to be, is going to affect other social behaviors. And those social behaviors, if they're the grounds of the principles, and if the principles are the grounds of the rules, those social behaviors, which have been changed by beliefs about what the law is, are going to affect what the law is. But here, the principles, that, or the rules, are having a causal explanatory story. They're causally explaining how the law changes, but they're not metaphysically explaining. They're not metaphysical determinants of the law, if that makes sense. But of course, people's, what the law is and people's engagements with the law, people's beliefs about the law, have very substantial causal power in affecting social movements, in affecting people's beliefs, affecting all the sorts of things that are the social grounds, ultimately, of the law. Uh, Ilya, you said it doesn't follow that judges should follow. The law. When you say should, do you mean should in a moral sense or in an ought sans phrase sense or in the, in the sense of what people really should do? So I'm not sure I'm rigorously distinguishing between those things, but the bottom line is say you're a judge hearing a case and you could decide I'm going to follow these, some kind of balancing of these principles that uh, are laid out in Mitch Berman's article, and I'll use that as a guide to my decision making, or you could say, even though I know a number of other judges are doing what Mitch Berman says that they should do, I instead am going to follow Scalian textualism or Scalian originalism, or I'm going to follow John Hardy Lee's theory or any number of other options, and the fact that a lot of people are doing what you described them as doing doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they should be doing. Sure, I get all that, but I still... I'm just wondering what the nature of the should is. So if the should means what they really should do, or what many people would say morally what they should do, there I just want to channel Gary Lawson and say, not my department. So I'm just trying to explain what the law is. If we think there is law, we need an account of what makes it so. If there is law, if there are constitutional facts, if it is a constitutional fact that it is that a person who's 30 years old is ineligible to be president. That is not a fact of the universe which is ultimate, like the speed of light. So something must make it so. What makes it so? What could make it so? I'm giving an account of how it could be the case that legal facts are true. Uh, whether one ought to, in a non-legal non should, maybe a moral should or should of political morality, what people ought to do, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not made. Take up your argument. I don't think that legal shoulds and moral shoulds are as easily separable as what you just said implies. Okay. 
Uh, but then this response, based on my, my view, is a bit of a response, I think, to you, Bernie. So uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by legitimacy. I'm not exactly sure what I mean by legitimacy. I have some view of the different theories, view conceptions of legitimacy out there. I'm not trying to address that. So this is not a full account of constitutional law and all the sorts of questions that are properly asked about constitutional law, and even those questions which properly belong to the domain of constitutional theory. Uh, as I try to say in the paper, there are lots of questions we, should, we could ask. One is, is it legitimate? Another question is, what should judges do legally? Or what should judges do morally? But legally, it could be that they have the power to underenforce the law, or to craft prophylactic rules, or to do who knows what. And also there are questions about, is this system legitimate at all? All sorts of good questions. I think I'll probably help myself. I, I think the legitimacy of judicial review, for me, is easy enough. Uh, today, I, I'm, I'm sort of a pluralist about that. I think there are all sorts of accounts that lead me to think that it's legitimate on my sort of pre-reflective understanding of what legitimacy is. And I'll just help myself to those. So not part of this project, and I don't mean to be suggesting anything about it. I'm just trying to answer a very simple but important question, one thing that any constitutional theorist should care about, but not the only thing they should care about, which is, hey, if there are legal norms, <coughs> what gives them their contents? I'll very quickly see his critiqued author privilege to respond to Ilya, which is that uh, I largely agree with, with Mitch's account. Um, certainly when we're talking about a foreign society or a past society, we think it perfectly plausible to say, yes, the law of the Aztecs involved human sacrifice, or um, the culture of this other group engages in some practice that we think is very terrible and that no one should ever engage in. But I think that the, those judgments are independent of our judgments about whether the people involved should be doing them. Um, and I think that, that in some ways tying again to Bernadette, so solving the problem of political obligation and solving the problem of the nature of law at the same time would be great, but I don't think that one is, is contingent on the other. I think that one can have an account of what are the features of a distant legal system that we could describe, and also should one participate in it at all, or should one depart from it, or rebel against it, or do other things. I see those as, as largely independent questions just for the purpose of analytical clarity. We have about four minutes, and I think six people. Judge, did you want? Did, were you signaling me earlier or not? Okay, then we have five people. So I suggest we invoke the rifle shot rule, um, and if we can all keep it to one shot, uh, I have Steve Smith, and Richard Primus, Mike Ramsey, uh, Fred Shower, and Ryan Williams. I, I don't think, uh, Mitch, that you and Steve can get uh, away from these questions quite as easily as you're doing. So let me just. Um, I think. Uh, I agree with you that when you say that the text or the communicative content of the text isn't the law and that we need, um, you, you say I think more of a, an account of the metaphysics uh, of what the Constitution is. Um, you try and provide that in terms of social and psychological facts and some of the people here agree with you on that even if they don't agree with your particular description of it and so forth. And to me, this has the same problem as like uh, conventionalist accounts of morality. Sure, you can talk about moral conventions, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, but they will not be an account of what morality is to the people who believe in it. The people will not, if someone says cheating is wrong, and someone tries to give an ontological account of that in terms of uh, people in our society have the judgment that cheating is wrong. <coughs> That won't be what they mean, and it'll turn into a sort of an infinite regress if you try and pursue that. Uh, I'll just say quickly, I think your social psychological account of what the Constitution is has the same problem. Richard. Um, my rifle has two barrels. They'll both be fired really, really quickly. Um, frame, the points are about Mitch, but I'm going to frame it 
in terms of uh, a thought about John's intervention and a thought about Chris's. For John's, there's a moment when you say, and not only you, lots of us talk this way, doesn't it matter that we have a written constitution and not an unwritten one? And I think the answer from the point of view of Mitch's paper is we have a written constitution from which it doesn't follow that we, have an that we don't have an unwritten constitution. Or at the very least, we have a written constitution, but that doesn't tell you that you will ever be able to make legal sense of it without stuff that isn't in it. It's not either or. And the similar point that goes to Chris is it's true, we have a very, very thick practice in this legal culture of invoking the authority of the Constitution and saying, no, it's this, right? It, it's, it's here, we justify in terms of this, sometimes text, sometimes original meaning. We absolutely, absolutely have that practice. A full view has to understand it. But, and like this is a conversation I've had like with Will in print, right, among other places. We also have very thick legal practices of doing things that, uh, that a competent reader of English who is not socialized into our legal culture would never excogitate from that text, right? And that, that too is part of the practice and that can't be jettisoned any more than the part that you point to. Um, well, just real quickly, I, I'm not sure I understand why uh, it's, it, we necessarily have to have a theory, a constitutive theory of, of constitutional law that's anything other than, uh, well, it is what the Supreme Court says it is. I'm not sure if we agree on anything beyond that as a, uh, as a positive matter. Uh, and um, it, it seems to me that really most of the time when we're talking about what, um, what the law quote unquote is, we're really talking about um, what we think the law um, ought to be. And maybe I'm just echoing Ilya's point here, uh, but uh, it, it seems like there's an assumption there um, that uh, it doesn't follow to me. And it seems to me that, um, that really originalism uh, as I see it, is mostly um, a normative theory that where we ought to move within this contested ground of constitutional law um, is to something uh, that's based um, principally on the original meaning of the text. That's not a claim of that what, what is the law is, with apologies to Stephen Will, um, but it's a claim um, of where we ought to take the law from this contested ground, and that, that everything that you're describing is really just the contested ground. Right. To Steve before too quickly using the argument of the decisional practices of respected and disrespected justices, bear in mind that Justice Harlan was very much a principle user and Justice Black was very much a rule user. And at least for those of us of a certain age, it was clear when we were in law school who was the one who was praised more. To uh, Mitch, I wonder if you might in the next iteration of this paper, at least connect your distinction between rules and principles with a number of other possible distinctions between rules and principles. <coughs> One would be the precision vagueness metric, which is commonly put in terms of rules and standards. Another would be the difference between absolute and overridable. A third would be the distinction between mandatory and optional, which Dworkin at times uses. That is, if a, a rule exists, it must be applied. Principles can be taken off the shelf or not, and a judge is not doing anything wrong by not using it. And fourth, um, the distinction between that which exists in positive law and that which exists up there, out there, or down there, 
but may not in, be in positive law and possibly might be extracted from positive law, but possibly may come from somewhere else. All of these can be different formulations of rules and principles, and it might be worthwhile connecting your distinction with at least some of these. Right. Thanks. So, listening to your exchange, I was trying to think of an example that would put this in the sharpest point, and let me know if this works. And the question I have is about unconstitutional constitutional amendments. This is a theory that's been proposed at various times. You can have a constitutional amendment that itself violates the Constitution. Now, my sense is that that is not a mainstream view at the current time. Most people reject that. But if that's true, that if there's no internal constraints on the amendment process, it seems to me that we could sweep away all of the other principles you identify by just adopting a new constitutional amendment. And that's kind of the concern, part of the concern about the runaway convention. So I see kind of three possible responses. One is that view about unconstitutional amendments is just incorrect. We, we can't have amendments that are, are themselves unconstitutional. Two is something like Steve's account that uh, we have formal rules of change and that's really what determines our law. The third is that you could say that the principles of textual meaning and enactment intentions are so strong in that context and so overriding that they overwhelm all the other contrary principles. But if that's your account, then I wonder how far away you might be then from Steve. Do I have time to respond to anything? Uh, we're, we're three minutes over. I would invoke the principle of uh, Bertolt Brecht that uh, grub first, then ethics, and we can sort this out over lunch. <laughs>